0: and it's over to Lewis and Robbie.
1: Hello and welcome listener I've got on here Hello and welcome listener.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's you about- that spot on, mate. Predictive text. <laughs> well, predictive of the podcast. Listener base, really. <laughs> wow. well, maybe at this point anyway. Yeah.
1: Hello and welcome, listeners, to episode one hundred and nineteen of the two vets talk pets podcast, where too much talking your pets is barely enough. I'm Dr. Robbie Annett, and I'm joined by a man still glistening from his hourly dip in his Alcatol Sanitizer Plunge Pool. Everyone, please extinguish any naked flames. It's Dr. Lewis Kirkham. Lewis, how are you going?
2: Oh good, Robbie. Alcatol or alcohol.
1: Oh, uh, uh, well, it's alcohol. This one, that one, the, uh, the predictive text was correct, which was good. You know, <laughs> no. but, but was, so our one listener will be able to, uh, yeah, will we'll have heard it properly.
2: Very drying, very drying. The alcohol bath, very drying. It is, but gee whiz, it's really good for
1: helping on your hands when you when you got cuts and abrasions. Like yeah, we've been. Uh, so I've been off this week doing some work outside. You know, doing my um my landscaping. Yep. And so my hands are really dry. Um, and so I'm getting all these cracks from lifting up all the pavers and everything. And so then when I'm going to the shops and using the hand sanitizers, Ooh. oh, it's a it's a it's a new level of um of narcissistic pain that oh, I go to. Ouchie,
2: ouchie, yeah.
1: Oh, very much. So I can only imagine what your, you know, um, soft, delicate areas are like in your uh, hand sanitizer <laughs> plunge pool.
2: Very good, mate. Well, we won't. We don't want to talk on too much today, do we? About what has been happening because we've got a big interview coming up that we want want to get to. Yes. So um, we got. Um, Firstly, I guess we'll just go through and, and just thank our sponsors. Big thank you to Zilkeen. Uh, thank you, Zilkeen. That's right, supporters of the show. Actually, we've got a, a question with from Patreon that uh, that will talk about the use of uh, some Zilkeen, I think, with a house move that's coming up um, for, for a future Patreon supporter. Excellent. Um, so thank you very much, you guys. Um, and then, of course, uh, well, we've we got a big interview coming up uh, with one of our other sponsors, Delicate Care, haven't we?
1: yes we sure have yet yeah, with um uh, professor nick costa the um the brains behind the uh the the, the formulation of delicate care um a, a, a very much a, uh, a an in-depth um complete and balanced uh interview with uh with, with uh with pre- uh, Emeritus uh, professor costa um but delicate care australian made australian home all natural lewis yes as yeah. our listeners will find out no even synthetic the an- antioxidants
2: yeah, even the antioxidants are all natural and look i, I I think out of all the things i'm looking forward to i really wanted to hear this there's a story about general custer that i'm really looking forward to hearing about on the show on the on the interview so oh, wait we up can for- only hope <laughs> exactly and of course big thank you to our patreon supporters um especially this week big thank you to suzanne baker our decal gal oh who, suzanne who, who has actually upgraded her pledge so i think she might be almost in uh, up in the uh, the T-shirt rarefied air now. We might be actually sending a T-shirt out to her. So maybe she's T-shirt gal now, T-shirt and decal gal. Fantastic. Uh, well, how, in- how good's that? Oh, nice. So thank you very much, Suzanne. But also thank you to our other Patreon supporters. We, we really do appreciate... Uh, it um, uh, goes towards our our, uh, our zoom subscription that we've just uh, just upgraded haven't we so we can do interviews like we've got coming up with professor Nick uh, emeritus professor Nick costa so thank you very much guys
1: yeah uh, get get involved with the show this show is here for for you our listeners and our patreon subscribers so if um you know we uh, we're here at your beck and call if you've got questions for us if you've got comments you want to get involved Get involved. We'd love to hear from you. It's um yeah, we'd love to get you uh get you feeling good. I know it's uh it's always it's always a bit of fun when you get your name read out. So you know uh, be be a
2: part of it. Be a part of the show. Exactly. We have got some great questions from Tommy this week on Instagram, didn't we, mate? Did you want to want to run through those ones? <laughs> I just want to see what what he's going to
1: respond to when we give him his uh. Well, maybe we'll wait and see what happens when we uh, write back his our response. Yeah, just the listeners –
2: Listeners know we did get some questions on Instagram that were asking about the deep ins and outs and revenue and things on the of our of our uh, our veterinary clinics. And we thought, well, we just generally answer general pet questions, but um, what's the reasoning for your questioning, mate? So Tommy, you might have to hold on, mate, or you might have to become a, a, a Patreon supporter for friend? us to answer you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate, what about the, again the disclaimer?
1: Yeah, all advice on this show is generally in nature, so please consult your veterinarian before following any advice for your pet. We do our best to provide the most up-to-date information, but as veterinary medicine is continually advancing and changing, please let us know if you missed anything or if you need any clarifications.
2: Excellent, all right, I think we'll uh, we'll take a, a short break and I think once we come back from the break, we will have uh, our interview with um, with our new special guest on animal nutrition. Hey, Robbie, I'd love to give a shout-out to our friends at Petsure for their awesome free webinar series.
1: Yeah, man, I heard about those. Aren't they called Pause and Learn, as in (laughs) P-A-W-S?
2: I see what you did there.
1: Oh, mate, there's nothing like a good acronym. It got your attention. It certainly did, mate. But seriously, the Petsure webinars cover some amazing topics, though. They sure do. There's one on COVID-19 and pets. Very topical and essential viewing for all concerned pet parents in this COVID-19 world.
2: Indeed, mate. And for vets as well.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right. There's also another one called Setting Up Your New Pet for Success. And here's one that's really important. Helping pets avoid separation anxiety. That'd be right in your wheelhouse, wouldn't it?
2: Oh, mate, love that. Anything on behaviour, that's absolute gold.
1: Oh, mate, it's all gold, gold, gold for Pet Shaw here.
2: And you know they're presented by Petshaw's chief vet, Dr. Danny Hulhan, friend of the podcast, and also, they have a range of other pet experts for each topic, so you know you're getting the good stuff. Oh, mate, that sounds great. So to learn more about these webinars or to register, visit petsure.com.au slash webinars. Registration is free, but spots are limited, and since we've just registered, two less. So make sure you secure your spot today. What? Oh,
1: and C's apply. Visit petsure.com.au for more information. <music> Okay, we have a special guest joining us today. It's Professor Nick Costa, the man behind the secret herbs and spices of the Australian made and owned range of pet foods, Delicate Care. Professor Costa graduated in 1973 from the Adelaide uh, Uni with a Bachelor of Ag Science with first-class honours in ag biochem. He got his PhD in 1977 based on carnitine biosynthesis and metabolism. He was then appointed lecturer in biochemistry and nutrition at the School of Veterinary Studies at Murdoch University in Perth in nineteen seventy. He became head of the veterinary biology and biomedical sciences department in 2000. He was appointed the Dean and chair of sustainable agriculture at Murdoch uni in 2005, then he retired in 2011. And was accorded the title of Professor Emeritus, which we were just discussing with Nick. Uh, basically, means uh, you know all, all the hassle but none of the pay uh, that that he had previously. Um, in his time, Professor Costa has established and led research teams in ruminant nutrition and metabolism, trace element metabolism. Um, oh, hang on. Uh, that's just That's my right. wife getting a phone call coming through the phone. So I've just quickly de- declined that one. Um, uh, uh, let's see uh, trace element metabolism including serving as the Australian representative on the international committee for trace element metabolism in man and animals. Um, if you don't mind, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good one to have on your CV companion animal clinical nutrition, including dilated cardiomyopathy and boxer dogs. He's co-authored over 150 scientific publications and two books. Um, not, not sure whether or not you want to have a book off with him, Lewis. I think he's got you covered with the, uh, probably the, the the width of books from what you've written. Um, uh, he's been busy in his lab formulating pet foods for over four 40 years, including commercial super premium foods as well as clinical pet foods only available through veterinarians. And legend has it, after watching old reruns of Skippy and Daffy Duck cartoons, had the epiphany about the formulation of his novel protein diet for dogs and cats. Welcome to the show, Professor Nick Costa. Thanks for joining us all, all the way from the COVID safe zone in Western
2: Australia. How are you going?
3: I'm well, thanks, Robbie. It's good to see Lewis and yourself.
2: It's great to have you on the show. We finally got you on.
3: It took a while, didn't it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, yes all, the, all the shutdowns and the lockdowns and then... Uh, oh, and then, goodness, yes. Yeah, and you're, you're free to go in the state over there.
3: It's great. Yeah, we can't go anywhere out of the state, but we certainly can wander around in the state. It's a, big a- enough,
1: it's a big enough state, though, Nicky. You'd have a lot of trouble getting all the way around it, though. So, oh, you know.
3: yeah. Well, it, um, my colleagues at Murdoch had a diagram they used in uh, the US, and it shows the state of Texas fitting into Western Australia five times. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Which really upsets their their, uh, colleagues in the US, except uh, one chap had a sense of humour, which is quite unusual. At the next conference, he showed a map of Texas in which he fitted... Uh, a map of Western Australia five times. <laughs> uh, uh, very good.
1: Now I was, I was very jealous last night watching the, uh, watching the football. Uh, uh, I barracked for Collingwood. So seeing Col- Collingwood playing Geelong over there at Optus stadium in Perth, go, Oh, gee, I'd love to be able to get over and watch the footy, but you know, it's, um, it seemed like it was pretty well Melbourne weather over there in Perth last night. Anyway,
3: oh, it was, it was wet, cold, uh, slippery. Yeah. And, um, I'm a Bombers supporter. Have been uh, from back in the VFL days, so uh, they're doing okay this year. Mighty Bombers, are.
1: yeah, they're doing okay. They're uh, they're they having a uh, having a decent season of
3: it again. Yeah, it's handy having a biochem background barracking for uh, the Bombers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't want to bring it up. I didn't want to bring the peptide things up, uh, Nick. But since you brought it into uh, brought it into evidence, you know, um, yeah, that, that's good. You would have been able to trawl through all the uh, the um, what do they call him, Dr. Ageless, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know?
3: Yes, it was shocking.
2: Yes. Yeah. well we could talk footy all day guys but let's what's let's, let's how we get into, uh, into some food nutrition stuff yeah
1: um yep. so so Nick what's um, you know, what does your sort of day entail you know when you you we were running through your CV there about all your nutrition background um yeah. what sort of stuff do you uh, do you do what's your um, you know, how do you how do you get from sundown to summer so sun up to sundown what do you get up to
3: well uh, basically I'm retired. So um, part of my job with uh, Delicate Care and a few other uh, companies is um, essentially formulation, troubleshooting, keeping up to date, these sorts of things. Because uh, Companion animal nutrition, particularly uh, canine and feline nutrition, it's getting more and more complex. So it takes a, a fair breadth of... Uh, linking biochemistry, metabolism, uh, nutrition, and uh, trends in dietary uh, thinking, particularly since they're basically companion animals. They're our friends. They're part of the family. So uh, essentially what works for humans and what humans want is what they want for their dogs and their cats quite often.
1: It is, it is that consumer driven, that um, that complexity, that sort of you know, constant driving thing that people, is that what? Uh, oh, what it's a bit of
3: both, from? actually, uh, there, Robbie, because um, formulating for dogs and cats is quite different to traditional agricultural nutrition. See, so if you're formulating for cattle or sheep, you're looking for growth, you're looking for production, you're trying to get something to market. This is really. Uh, critical in things like um, uh, meat uh, chickens, for broiler chickens or uh, pigs. You've got very sophisticated nutritional thinking there. Conversely, feeding dogs and cats is feeding for whole of life, for wellness. You're not aiming at uh, growing a big dog for a market. Uh, You're not aiming to sort of... uh, look at all the genetics of a cat uh, so you can match the lysine to its growth rate.
2: You're not looking uh, to fatten up a cat, are you really? It's no, not your
3: ideal aim. No. And uh, we won't go there. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a pet cat, uh, Pudding, who's 19 now. Oh. And uh, that's quite a, a significant old cat.
1: Yeah. He's that's the pointy end. Absolutely.
3: And, uh, yeah. So, when in formulating uh, these diets, you really got to think about um, maintaining a live weight or a weight of animal with uh, length of feeding, because you're going to, for some breeds of dogs, you're, and uh, our, our pudding, you're looking at 19, 20 years. And there's a variation in, uh, Dogs, for instance, have the greatest range of uh, weight within a breed. Going from a Chihuahua right up to a Newfoundland, you've got a hundredfold range. There's nothing like that in other species that we deal with. Right. So that presents interest. And then given the diversity of dogs, you've got uh, dogs that have unusual uh, genetic profiles, which influences the way in which you feed them. Uh, through the selection over uh, millennia. So, again, uh, there's a, a level of complexity on taking into account not just the fact that it's a dog, but it's a dog that's a Bedlington Terrier or a Bull Terrier or uh, uh, some unique breed.
2: Wow. Fantastic. So that's, um, yeah, that's incredible. When you put it like that, it is quite a breadth of sort of animals that, uh, or, you know, breed of animal, uh, the diversity within that breed. That, 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 that's mm. amazing. And I guess the way, um, obviously we, we met you or got in touch with you through delicate care, you're the, you're the brains behind the food we've been told you're, you're, you're. you're...
3: Well, actually it's, a it's not quite that uh, straightforward. It started, as much through uh, being approached by uh, our graduates from the VET degree who are looking, um, and it's one of the things that I really have to say right from the outset is what a privilege it's been to teach VET students and to teach any students in general. I think we ought to make a, uh, we should recognize just how great it is, uh, our education system is in Australia, and uh, the commitment of kids doing vet is just tremendous. And in this case, it was uh, uh, at Murdoch, we used to have a a system called an academic advisor. When you were admitted to the veterinary degree, you are assigned a particular academic who was uh, your friend at court, if you like.
1: Yeah, right. So if you had
3: financial or medical or uh, personal difficulties, you could see this person who then represent you or uh, take you through the administrative maze that universities have. And uh, yeah. anyway, uh, one of uh, the students, uh, a couple of these students, approached uh, my colleague, Shirlin Lowe uh, and myself at the vet school and um, said, we really want to get a complete and balanced food that's uh, an elimination diet based on kangaroo because kangaroo works well as an elimination diet, as a novel protein. What, what can you come up with that we can feed conveniently and it's uh, complete and balanced and it, it's suitable for a majority of breeds? And that, that was the task that set, set us. And prior to that, Way back in the dream time of the 90s when I was uh, very active in the vet school, I was consulting to a group by Armour, and again, uh, we were approached by a a Japanese company to produce a completely natural food. This is in the 90s when uh, synthetic uh, antioxidants were commonly used. So we were one of the first to use uh, tocopherols as an as a, uh within uh, the system, and that meant we had a natural food that had natural preservatives and free of co- uh, artificial coloring and flavoring, so uh, it was completely natural. And uh, off went to Japan, and they said, No, it's not, it can knock <laughs> <laughs> your back. I know, no, it was true, but anyway, it turns out that. Uh, in the ca- production of the kangaroo meal, they'd used thuxiquin as a uh, antioxidant, which right. was common in those days. Yes, right. so we had to go and the delicate care range now controls the whole supply chain from production of a particular meal. So there is no synthetic antioxidants; it's completely natural all the way through the processing of uh, that particular protein source so that we can claim natural no preservatives no artificial colourings nothing of uh, it's completely uh, complies with that Description.
1: The the thing with the uh, uh, the synthetic antioxidants versus the natural ones is that uh, is there what's the benefit there of going for the more natural antioxidants rather than the synthetic ones?
3: Well, it's interesting one. Uh, As a as a scientist, I personally I don't see any difference. Yeah, right. (laughs) From a consumer perspective. Consumers think that uh, synthetic antioxidants come from uh, industries such as uh, refining coal, petroleum, uh, uh, things. So Nasty they're quite things. suspicious, yeah. of, uh, that type of thing. And, um, for instance, with ethoxiquin, when it was, uh, it was first uh, challenged, it uh, the FDA did a three generation trial at three times the maximum dose to see if there's any effect. And in the third generation, there was slight lipofusion inclusions in the liver and that was, that didn't seem of any sort of uh, acute pathology and that was all. So for all intents and purposes, it was safe, but it wasn't accepted by consumers.
1: Yeah, right. Uh,
3: whereas the decoferols were well accepted as natural vitamin E. Uh, it fitted the natural concept. You need to use more and more. it was a more expensive product to use, but it could be as effective if used at the correct dose and uh, it had the advantage that it was a completely natural product.
2: Yeah. All right. Okay. It's interesting. That sort of lines up with a, um, uh, with a listener question we got uh, that, that came in. We did ask before before you came on the show, we asked for a couple of weeks if any listeners had any questions. We did get a few come in. And one yeah. of the ones um, is about the the nu- nutritional value of the food. Um, and, you know, I guess the antioxidants would come into that as well. And when you, you know, extruding the food or you, the cooking process, you know, do you lose some of that nutritional value of the food? And and then how do you then sort of test once they've been through that cooking or the preparation process that the nutritional value is still remaining in that food.
3: There are uh, particular nutrients that are sensitive to heat during processing. And uh, the classic one of this is vitamin B1 thiamine. Uh, So the way you compensate for that sensitivity is that you select a form of uh, thiamine in this case, a mononitrate form rather than the hydrochloride form which is less heat sensitive and you add in uh, the case of uh, delicate care for instance we add three times the rec- uh, minimum recommended amount so that as it goes through the heating process of extrusion we know there's sufficient leftover to more than meet the needs for vitamin B1 uh, The other thing that happens is in the quality of meals, um, for instance, in preparing poultry meal, you'd want people that are uh, experienced and consistent in the way in which they produce that meal because heating destroys the availability of lysine, which is an essential amino acid. Yes. Now... When we say essential, people get confused. Essential is a nutritional term. It means that it's essential, that it has to be in the diet because the dog can't make it in uh, the dog's body. Mm. Doesn't mean that it's any more essential in the body, it's essential in the diet. Yeah. They're all essential in the body. <laughs> <laughs> and lysine's a critical amino acid, and it's quite it too is heat sensitive and it has a certain availability. So again, you need to to keep all these factors in mind when you're formulating and it's a matter of both the levels you include in the formulation and your interaction with the extruder operators. What you do is you get to understand the machinery you're using, the limitations on that, the pressures, the temperatures. So you get a real feel for how much you need to add and the sort of sources there. So there's, it's a bit of art as well as science involved in that. A bit of alchemy, yeah. Nick. Indeed. There's A little bit of black
1: magic there. Magic. Ah, Good, yeah.
3: <laughs> so, um, and that's really where um, the experience comes in and where you've got uh, major companies like Mars and Purina, they've got... Um, uh, fantastic facilities for ensuring the quality of their products. They're well tested, they're well established, and they're well experienced uh, for these sorts of things. In our case, with delicate care, we don't have those levels of resources, so we're relying um, a bit more, if you like, on ensuring that we understand our supply chains. We I try to keep on top of my nutritional thinking and uh, I interact very closely with our uh, production manager in in these things. And uh, one of our graduates is the quality control officer. So we monitor our production regularly. Uh, and then we do use independent testing of digestibilities. Uh, so we use an independent lab, NATO are accredited to both test nutrient levels and to test digestibilities. So at least that uh,
1: way, you know, at the end of that process, what yep. you say is in the bag, you know, is in the bag, you know, it's, yeah, you know, it's, and there, also
3: yeah. that it's competitive. You know, you would, in a digestibility trial, you might have it up against a, a major competitors sort of benchmark how you're tracking using an independent laboratory with uh, uh, validated techniques of assessment.
1: Yeah, right. Um, now, a- another thing, Nick. Another um, question from one of our uh, one of our listeners is: I'm um, wondering about is there a scientific basis behind having different food for large breed puppies versus ordinary puppies? You know, it sort of harks back to what you were saying earlier on about that. N- mm. Not only the the adult weight size of um, of dogs from a Chihuahua to a Newfie but also then the growth rates of those
3: the growth results. rates are exceedingly different.
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, how, um, what's the, is it a, um, is it a hunch? Is it a vibe sort of thing that you've got? Or is this oh the, no, behind it? Um, and, no, and, and we're getting and,
3: more and more information in this, this area. Yeah. Um, the major authority that's recognized that's uh, specifying, Nutrient recommendations is a group called the American uh, Association of American Feed Control Officials AVCO. and each year they put out a series of uh, nutrient recommendations for dogs and cats. Right, and uh, in that recommendation, in up until 2016, they had a. Um, Set range for calcium, for argument's sake. Yep. For puppies, that had a minimum and a maximum. In calcium's case, that right. in 2016 they um, modulated that specification such that for the small and medium breeds, the maximum puppies, the maximum calcium was 2.5% on dry matter whereas for large breeds, it was 1.8%. Doesn't sound much, but in fact, it's a large difference in calcium, and it arises from work that was done uh, predominantly in Holland through uh, Hazewinkel, Working with large breeds of dogs showed that you needed to have a balanced combination of protein, energy, and calcium for large breeds of dogs because the growth rate is quite slow. Right. Yeah. Years ago, I worked with uh, some breeders of American Great Danes and we monitored the growth rate of these Great Danes. And the important point there is that they took until, well, uh, at least two years before they reached their full genetic Capacity, so it's a slow period compared mm. to, let's say, uh, uh, an Australian Terrier. Uh, about six or eight, six to eight months, they're fully grown. Yep. Yes. Yep. So you've got a slow growth rate, and you've got uh, a very large bone and muscle mass compared to, uh, with a different rate of maturation of these tissue types. So you need to be very careful. Because people think because they're a large breed, they need more calcium for the bones. Yes. yes. In fact, that's a misconception. They need slightly less calcium balanced to energy. And the energy level that's uh, ideal was about 0.6 grams of calcium per megajoule ME. So there's very specific data on this. And as you climb up, as AVCO recognized in 2016, the max for uh, calcium for uh, large breeds of dogs is 1.8. So you'll see that uh, puppy food might sort of say for small to medium breed, that's code for saying we've got more than 1.8% calcium on dry matter, because we can go to two and a half for those breeds. Mm. Whereas for uh, German Shepherds, the Great Danes, these types of breed Mastiffs. We've got to lower that calcium concentration, extend the growth period, and have a specific puppy food for those large breeds. That's an example of where um, you've got to be cognizant. Alternatively, you could have an all-breeds puppy food, so long as that all-breeds puppy food has a maximum of 1.8% calcium. Right. Be okay for the small breeds and okay for the large breeds, whereas right. the two and a half wasn't okay for the large breeds. And you could run into uh, osteodystrophies in that uh, large breed situation, or you'd be tempted to over-supplement calcium.
2: Right. Yeah, you get the end up with the, the sort of the rubber puppies, don't you? If you, if yeah, you give them yeah. give
3: rubber puppies. So we that's call an it. example. And then... Um, Yes. You go through, there's all sorts of breed uh, differences now, the classic was Bedlington's, which were copper sensitive.
0: Mm.
3: Now given the uh, in, uh, the sophistication of genetic screening, you can now screen for that copper sensitivity gene and uh, responsible Bedlington breeders have gone down that pathway so it's not as critical as it used to be, but Quite a lot of uh, standard feeds would have too much copper for older uh, Bedlington's that hadn't been through that genetic screen.
2: Yeah, right. And so you you sort of mentioned, you know, I I think, you know, Robbie would agree that certainly in consult, when we see the large breed dogs, owners are always saying, oh, you know, I'm giving them a bit more calcium because they're growing. And, you know, and so it's great that you've sort of dispelled that myth there. Are there any uh, sort of other. You no know, uh risks that you can see in giving a home cooked diet that that you know that uh, the owners don't want to feed like a product like delicate care which is a complete food yeah. you know are there any well, actually,
3: sort of a- yeah, yeah I, uh, back in the days when I was regularly teaching vet students we'd brew up our own foods right uh, quite a lot of uh, vet students uh, will fall into that category of wanting to They're your best mate. You want to do your best for them. Yes. Part of that is cooking the food as you would for your own uh, child, as it were. Of course. So um, you can do home-cooked food quite easily. And uh, starting with a combination of chicken necks, um, where you've got a combination of meat and bone and... um, liver. Uh, With dogs, it's easier because you can use uh, pumpkin and uh, beta-carotene because dogs have a capacity to uh, get the carotenoids converted to vitamin A whereas cats don't. So Cats being obligate carnivores, you've got to feed them uh, preformed vitamin A as liver. It's a bit tricky there. Again, that's one of my little foibles because uh, in cats are sensitive to overfeeding in vitamin A. Again, people sort of can overdo these things. So, in home formulation, you need to be careful because we have predominantly lamb's fry rather than calf's liver in Australia. Right, right. And okay. lamb's fry has a lot more vitamin A in it than uh, cow's liver. Okay. Cow's yeah. liver has to feed a uh carotene because cows don't split uh, carotenoids as as effectively. And the way you can tell that is a cow on grass will end up with yellow fat from the carotenoids, whereas sheep on green grass always have white fat. there you go. Anyway, if you uh, overfeed vitamin A to cats, you'll develop... uh, Abnormal bone uh, growth, you start mineralising uh, soft tissue and getting spicules on uh, where bones are, and they're quite painful. Uh, so, again, in the home feeding, cats love liver. You can overfeed it quite easily if you're going down the sheep liver pathway.
1: Yeah, I saw a case of that years ago. But back in back probably fifteen years ago, it was a cat that um that had uh, a dystrophic calcification, and yeah. um and we we um went back through the history, and the owner said, so "Oh, I yeah, feed." I just the cat loves liver, so I've just been yeah. feeding it lots and lots and lots of, of lamb liver. So was
2: wasn't a vet student from from Perth, was it, mate? At that stage,
1: <laughs> no, no, Lewis, they, uh, they they have had the the, the best in the way of nutritional uh, uh lecturing. Right from so I might have oh. been a vet student from Melbourne because I don't we didn't get any of
2: this stuff.
3: No. Yeah, well, see, my, my students would always quote my stories back at me when in trouble, like my story of how selenium toxicity killed General Custer and stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> these, are, these are stories, of, and what you find is instead of remembering you know, the metabolism and deficiencies of selenium, they can spew back this general Custer story, no problems at all. <laughs> yeah. I bet they can.
1: It's just when they write that on their exam questions as, as well, Nick. That's the that's the problem when they go, Oh, look, I don't remember that, but here's something I remember. Yeah, here's, general-
3: here's something else you might like.
1: <laughs> does that, does that get me fifty percent? You know, can I you know, oh, at, least, at least get me a supplementary examination? <laughs> you know.
3: And uh, anyway, so these are the issues with uh, home feeding is uh, meat, of course, is extremely calcium deficient. Mm. So if you're feeding a meat and pasta combination, you're feeding a calcium deficient diet. Right. So again, you've got to think about how you're going to supplement that calcium and it's got to be matched in with the phosphorus. Um, Combined with that, to make that calcium available, you're looking at vitamin D. Right, yes. Vitamin D is... Dogs aren't that, as, as efficient as we are. And you can see from my hairstyle, I've got the perfect panel for generating vitamin D. Vitamins, from from vitamin D. Yeah. <laughs> I, get, I get plenty of it
2: too. Nick, don't worry.
3: It doesn't take long for me to get my full dose. <laughs> Even at low latitudes. And uh, anyway, uh, you do need to put vitamin D in there at about 400 IU per uh Kilo dry matter. But once you go over that, there's a little, there's an upper limit for vitamin D as well. So you can easily overfeed that and you end up with, uh, problems again of, uh, you just reminded me there, Robbie, of, uh, calcification of mm. soft tissue. So, uh, there are little tricks and traps in home feeding, uh, there's raw diets that are now coming onto the market and uh, responsible producers of those diets have taken care to make sure that those diets are complete and balanced, according to an ABCO specification. So you need to look for those words, complete and balanced. Right. Complete means the complete set of nutrients. Balanced means those nutrients are balanced to the energy in that diet. So there, that's the code <clears throat> that you're looking for from companies that, uh, who comply with that particular specification.
2: Oh,
1: fantastic. Right. <laughs> Uh, now, we've got another question as well, um, Nick, from uh, from one of our uh, uh, longtime listeners, a uh, decal gal over in, uh, over in uh, America. She runs a, uh, a, a grooming salon over there. So she gets a lot of questions from her clients. Um, and she says, uh, I have a question about nutrition. It's probably the most asked question from my clients. Mm-hmm. They all want to know if grain is bad for dogs. I see a lot of dogs that have yeast infections, super mm-hmm. smelly skin, and it seems oily as well. I'm interested. Interested to know if it's from the food
3: now that's a it's an interesting question
1: hot button topic nick hot button yes
3: yes well uh about oh, six years ago a swedish group using uh genetic uh screening tools showed the presence of copies of alpha amylase 2 that's a gene that codes for the enzyme that breaks down starch in grains. Right. So it means dogs with those gene copies have the capacity to use grain. They are not wolves. They are dogs.
1: Right.
3: And not only that, there's breed variations such that the dingo, for instance, does have, has no alpha amylase. Right, so, they've right. never evolved in conjunction with an alpha amylase, which is pro- uh, presumably from humans, because we've got stacks of the stuff. Yeah, right. As a gene copy. So, going up to uh, the, the breed that had the most uh, number of copies was uh, English Springer Spaniels, and uh, German Shepherds have plenty. So, there's a relationship between. Breed and amylase copies, so there's a, there's a variation in the capacity to, to digest grains, but most breeds have a capacity to use the grain. Start there, the starch in grains. Right now, um, to use that starch, that starch has to be gelatinized, so the starch has to be exploded through heating because dogs can't eat raw starch any more than we can as humans. You're not just going to knock in a big potato. potato. yeah? Raw potato, you're gone. You're off to the dunny in no time. That'll really get you going. (laughs) And uh, and in fact, undercooked potato salad is the ideal way to sort of send everybody off. (laughs) I blame (laughs) the chicken, but it was in fact the undercooked. That salad. I'm just
2: taking notes, Nick. Thanks, thanks a lot. This <laughs> from the next dinner party. Thanks, mate. I appreciate that. How to get everyone out of the house?
3: Moving people on. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, dogs have that capacity to use grains, and it is variable between dogs and between breeds. Sorry, and probably within dogs as well. We don't think uh, the pro so. uh, The starch has to be gelatinized. The gelatinization occurs in either the the, in the cooking process, and in foods like delicate care, we're very careful to ensure we've got complete gelatinization of the starch in the grain that we use, which is an ancient grain, sorghum. Right. Uh, In the case of sorghum, it has. An unusual starch structure which has no gluten associated with it, so it 's a gluten free uh, grain source right compared with wheat, which has its classic wheat glutens now in humans, those wheat glutens are the basis of the sensitivity we call celiac disease mm. it hasn 't re- celiac disease equivalent hasn 't really been established in um, in dogs, but there is, as the lady has uh, seen, some dogs do become intolerant as a gut-sensitive intolerance for uh, some grains and wheat's often a culprit there. Corn can be, it's a frequency of feeding and it's uh, you've got gluten in corn and you've got gluten in uh, wheat. Rice doesn't have gluten and sorghum doesn't have gluten.
1: Right.
3: Right. Uh, the next thing about it is the um, the glucose that's released from the starch is released at different rates depending on the grain that's used. For instance, um, we we call it a concept called glycemic index in humans. Rice has a very high glycemic index. In other words, you, uh, for Quite a lot of rices, and particularly jasmine type rice, you get a rush of uh, glucose yep. in. So
2: I get that after oh, I yeah. have my sushi. Yeah.
3: yeah, that's a high GI uh, yeah. food. Whereas uh, sorghum, for instance. Wait. Oh, sorry about that. That, that. That's my mate who's. Uh,
2: that's that's the rice calling you. Their sponsorship. They're a bit worried. Oh, that he's that. going to be
3: calling. He's going to be calling about uh uh, I've got a vineyard down south where we grow Shiraz. Oh. I'm trying to get it arranged Some pruning of the grapes.
2: Oh, I thought you were trying to arrange a, a carton to be sent over, Nick. That was very thoughtful of you.
3: <laughs> Do the right thing.
2: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, very. The, the life of the emerit- emeritus, pro- retired emeritus professor, hey? Oh, Fantastic.
3: It is. Anyway, going back to the <laughs> in contrast, uh, Sorghum has a low GI and uh, it has a very slow and controlled release of glucose into the system. So again, you get a difference in the metabolism depending on the grain source. So again, that's going to be different. Uh, You've got grain-free foods. Grain-free is just code for predominantly um, sweet potato or potato. As a carbohydrate source, so they're yep. still starch-based. Mm, yeah, it's just a different starch, and it's usually in combination with uh, legumes: uh, lentils, um, peas, chickpeas, this type of thing. Garbanzo beans—I love that when <laughs> it's the name for chickpeas. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, um, they've become very popular on the basis that uh, they said that. You don't see dogs attacking a field of wheat. Well, well granted, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, do,
1: do you see uh, them picking sweet why are you
3: potatoes? Well, you feeding grain, grain to dogs. Well, you're really just feeding carbohydrate. It's the difference between the biochemistry versus nutrition versus the uh, conceptual thinking that some people have. Well, anyway. In,
2: in contrast, they, they go out to the fields and pick sweet potatoes, I guess, don't they?
3: Oh yeah, just a quick scratch and a ding.
1: (laughs) So really, unless you're trying to, unless you're trying to feed a dingo, it's probably, uh, probably. Dingo, dingo
3: says, I'm not having any of that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm impressed with that. So the way to, if you want to, you know, you've got some dingoes that hang around. Just feed them some cake, and they'll run off to the toot. (laughs) You got them. So, So is there? Is do you think? Do you think there's a link with, between that sort of grain-free stuff and the yeast, like a, a decal galley sort of... Do I don't it's know. It's a, it's, a,
3: it's a strong, long boaters draw. Right. Um, Pro-grain-free has really sort of struggled because... Uh, for a tick there. About two years ago, the FDA came out with uh, this uh, warning, I suppose you'd call it, about uh, dilated cardiomyopathy in breeds that don't normally, where you don't normally see that uh, Mm. particular condition. And it was associated with uh, grain-free foods that had a high legume content. Right. It was uh, treatable with taurine. Now, taurine's a uh, beta-amino sulfonic acid. Cats can't make it, dogs can. Mm. And it's present in um, meat, and it's made in the body of a dog and in humans from methionine and uh, cysteine, the sulfur amino acids, through a biochemical pathway of transsulfuration. Uh, interesting thing with taurine is uh, that it's present in the heart of dogs. It's about 60% of the amino acids there. It's an enormous amount. Yeah, right. We've got no idea what it's doing. Uh it's, Andy, for somebody who wants to do a research project. And uh, to absorb fats, uh, you need uh, bile salts. And bile salts are a breakdown product of cholesterol. And you conjugate them with a particular amino acid. In dogs, you conjugate entirely with taurine. So you've got this pathway, uh, and that has an unusual sort of Positive feedback loop, normally it gets recycled. Uh, what we're unsure of is the change in, this is where we're getting to the yeast, we're change in the gut that's associated with these particular uh, foods because you have a high percentage of what we call oligosaccharides. Oligo means a few saccharides. So this means instead of dye, which means two. Oligo means three or eight More. to ten. Yeah. Uh, sugars. And they're unusual sugars and the, those enzymes that we talked about earlier, like amylase, don't touch these things. They go down further into the gut and there they can act as food for the bugs that are in the gut in a thing we call the microbiome, which is the gut ecology of the various microbial organisms there. Now, we don't know what those oligosaccharides are doing in those concentrations. We worry that it might be increasing uh, certain types of organisms. We don't know. It's early days. This is only uh, two years. I think what it's done is it's given people pause on the grain-free foods and I think from my opinion, and this is only my opinion, I thought that the naming of the companies as happened last year in about July, was a bit premature because we really didn't understand um, completely uh, what was happening with the Tory. You mean the naming by the FDA of the companies? So it was named the by breads. the FDA. Yes, and, yes. Uh, I can understand they felt they had a responsibility to get that information out there as they saw it. Um, it really been a year since the first reports uh, back in 2018. I'd been involved in formulating some grain free pet foods way back then. And as soon as I saw this trend from note that I had a paper earlier on dilated cardiomyopathy with uh, a colleague, Rob Lebuck, who's in Melbourne. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Rob and I worked with boxes, where it's uh, it's a classic condition. And um, in those foods that I formulated, I put in taurine and carnitine for uh, two reasons, the taurine because it seemed to be implicated and carnitine because it's drawing methionine in from transmethylation and denying Uh, methionine for transsulfuration which is the other process so so the understanding of your biochemistry determines why you're putting these uh, particular compounds in and I note that lately they've suggested that as a precautionary measure uh, grain free pet foods include both of those compounds, taurine and carnitine, routinely to compensate for any potential issues with DCM.
2: Right. And has the grain-free foods, have they gone down that path? Are they adding that now?
3: Uh, yeah, quite a lot are, uh, right. I assume, and uh, I'm not too sure. Uh, it really plummets the American and Canadian market because there are people growing grain legumes for that particular market. So you've got to remember that uh, pet food is a fantastic recycler of uh, products. As long as you're not really working into the human food chain, you're recycling, like for instance, uh, poultry meal is recycling quite high quality uh, protein Mm -hmm. through uh, a food uh, for a dog or a cat. And therefore it's not being a nitrogen burden in uh, disposing of carcasses from chickens, as it were. Yeah,
1: you, you're using those <laughs> byproducts that would have otherwise ended up in landfill.
3: Landfill and uh, possibly in waterways. Yes, yeah.
1: Um, uh, Nick, you were um, mentioning before you brought into evidence the microbiome, and that seems to be a, um, a real catch cry with Huge things at the moment. At you the know, moment. It, it's, it's, it's
3: really th- one of the directions we're going in there, Robbie. Um, been on it for oh, about 20 years now, right back uh, when Rob Freud came out with uh, prebiotics and probiotics. Yes. Well,
1: what's it, what's it? just give us a quick idea for our listeners, the well, difference between a pre and a, 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 a probiotic and a prebiotic.
3: It's actually basically a food. Right. And it's generally uh, an oligosaccharide, like fructo oligosaccharide, FOS. Yep. Uh, and it isn't broken down by the dog. It goes past the small intestine, goes down to the lower gut. And there, a prebiotic is food for those bugs. And you're hoping that that will feed good bugs. Mm. The good bugs will grow and take up all the room and there'll be no room left for bad bugs. Right. right. That's the thinking for prebiotics. Yes. For probiotics, that's a good bug. Uh, right. Things like your cult. Uh, where you're taking a particular organism, which is benign and grows well as in the cult system in humans. You take that regularly and it goes straight down and it's uh, protected. So it goes down into your gut, establishes there, grows in a benign way and therefore denies uh, any capacity for pathogenic Enter, uh, enterobacteria from growing. So, again, it's keeping your gut in a good, healthy way because the gut is one-third of your immunity. Yes. So it's important that you have a functioning, healthy uh, gut. This combination of uh, prebiotic, the food for good bugs, probiotic, good bugs directly growing there is what we're hoping will influence uh, this structure or this ecology we call the micro gut microbiome mm. and the gut microbiome is really becoming a big area of study. For a start, um, people looking at human genes, uh, since the Human Genome Project, we've got about twenty two twenty five thousand 25,000 genes in humans. Uh, latest work on the gut microbiome in dogs and cats has the gut microbiome with one and a quarter million genes. Yep. Oh, so, wow. so just when we thought we'd got to the complexity of the understanding human genome, and we've got about 330 million variants of the human gene sequence so far, so that's just looking you know we're just finding variants all over the place. You imagine that's coming off the base sequences in humans. You imagine you've got this huge complexity of, in the gut of all these organisms, a different whole phyla, And we're only just starting to study it. What we've found is that um, we're trying to feed it properly. We're trying to establish it. So in the delicate care range, what we've done is try to put together a combination of prebiotics, probiotics and fiber types from puppy to adult to older dogs. So you can both initiate and sustain a healthy microbiome. It's important. There's some work that came out of Oregon state last year it showed that they got uh, rescue dogs and they looked at the microbiome of those that were aggressive versus those that were not aggressive. And they were quite distinct. Right. But somehow or other, this microbiome difference is being translated into a behavioral aspect. Wow. So there's, there's a, an area. Hmm. What we've found and this... Gets me into another area. As as you get into sort of senior humans and senior dogs, those that develop canine cognitive uh, decline or Alzheimer's in humans, their gut microbiomes become different. Wow! So we're just starting this area. I I see it as an exciting area for both nutrition and uh, general health. Um, And in the delicate care range, we've been very particular about that, how we're trying to sort of maximize that. But you can see the complexity of trying to work this through. Uh, For instance, we've got a group at Murdoch uh, on a uh, phenomic project, and they're looking at the different, uh, it's just basically a whole lot of screening of uh, uh, metabolic differences and genetic differences in humans. They thought they'd look at the guts and they've got these powerful statistical programs for doing this. And they really sort of blown up their computers once they <laughs> put the, the microbiome differences. Now, just recently, uh, they compared, uh, humans, dogs, mice, and pigs, uh, the gut microbiomes of those four, uh, species, because often we use mice as uh, proxies for human work and we use pigs as proxies for human gut work because their guts are very similar uh, to humans. What they found was that the microbiome in dogs was virtually identical to humans and and pigs and mice were different. Oh, wow. Dogs are a much better model if you're going to have a model for human microbiome. And conversely, it means that in that development of the dog and the human over millennia, we've developed an ecology that's matching, which is not a surprise, really, because they're they're eating what we're eating, and and you'd expect the bugs to be uh, fairly similar. We're not living with mice. No. uh, Some people live with pigs. Not everybody does.
2: Right? And we, we're we're eating delicate care, and they're eating delicate care. It's all works at yeah. the same biome. That's fantastic.
3: <laughs> <laughs> was,
1: one, uh, one thing, one thing I picture Nick when um, when Lewis and I are emeritus podcasters. Um, that, that <laughs> I... I I, I, I can.
3: I pay. Yeah, you no, paid.
1: I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can picture um, you know, when you go to Bunnings and you go yeah. to get a um your tin of paint and they put the little um the little tints in, I can yeah. see that happening with the microbiome that will do a test, right? And they go, Okay, right, you need a little bit of this one, a little bit of this one, a little bit of this one, you yeah, and it just goes around well, and then you plug it all down and away you go.
3: Well, the beauty is that uh you know, the classic one is that they're finding obese people who've got a different Microbiome to the lean types, so we're looking at uh, how this might work. See if we can uh, do an uh, inoculation, fecal so transplants,
2: a, <laughs> a, a special kind of milkshake. You think from the, the lean,
3: the lean to oh, the I heavy? Love this.
2: <laughs> maybe maybe they could give a, Have a McDonald's. Have the uh, the the special McDonald's thick shake that makes you thin. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of things in the pipeline, and you know, and pipe yeah. Yeah, the pipeline, and I like that, what yeah. you're
1: going with that. that yes, line. yeah, yeah.
2: Went well with that one, more. Do you um? Are there any new foods that have you got that that are that are coming out? Particularly, I yeah, suppose we're, we're, we're talking we're about the two delicate.
3: in the pipeline. Yes, yeah. mm. <laughs> a cat dental. We're, right. Um. Dental diets are important for dogs and cats. They don't completely replace uh, dental work for veterinarians, but uh, essentially what you're trying to do with a uh, a dental kibble is uh, combine two effects, a mechanical effect through the structure and density of the kibble itself and a chemical effect So sort of uh, what we're doing there is if we start with the structure, it's basically mechanical. You're trying to get the tooth through a uh, fairly uh, porous kibble. So it'll go through and clean mechanically as it goes through, much like a toothbrush. And then along with that, we've developed uh, a organic set of acids that are natural, to uh, break up the biofilm. Interesting work from Melbourne University Dental School has shown the importance of the biofilm that develops uh, orally. And it's a complex mixture of uh, various microorganisms in a sort of uh, matrix of protein and fat, and carbohydrates and they sort of form in the mouth. And what you're looking to do is have that biofilm in a healthy ecology. And In the case of uh, these diets, that's what we're trying to do is break up biofilm so it has very little chance of developing any of the, um, organisms that lead to um, uh, bad health outcomes is the best way to put it, because dogs don't tend to get the same dental caries that humans get, I'm not sure why, <laughs> but yep. they don't. Yep. Uh, but they have found there's a whole series of uh, diseases that are linked to poor oral health. So we're trying to maximize your oral health in, uh, in dogs, uh, there's a particular um, hypothesis for humans and Alzheimer's, which is suggesting that P. gingivitis is uh, an organism that's a critical factor in the development of Alzheimer's and the inflammation wow. associated with Alzheimer's. So um, that leads me to the other development we've become very interested in senior dogs. Now, senior dogs are different depending on the breed. So an eight-year-old Great Dane is getting older. An eight-year-old Jack Russell is in the prime of its life. Yes,
1: absolutely, yeah.
3: So uh, we're defining senior as seven plus. And there's been some work that's shown that uh, canine cognitive decline, which follows the same sort of behavioural patterns as Alzheimer's in humans, is a lot more prevalent in senior dogs than is currently diagnosed, and it's particularly poorly diagnosed by veterinarians. Yes, because yeah. they don't see the mm. pick it up. Yeah. You've got yeah. to see the dog frequently. If yes. you're seeing the dog very infrequently, you're relying on the owner to really sort of inform you about any behavioral changes because you're unlikely to notice it yourself unless there's an extreme sort of change.
2: You've got, to, you've got to ask the right questions too. I think yeah. Nick
3: is a big yeah. part of his vet. Yeah. In fact, there's, those questions are critically important, Lewis. So I think it should be part of the training in clinical examinations, particularly for senior, uh, for senior dogs. And yep. uh, we've developed What's been shown is that there's a uh, inefficiency of utilization of glucose in these aging brains. So we've developed uh, dietary combinations that will lead to uh, production of ketones. Those ketones will make up the balance of the energy metabolism in the brain. Wow. Wow. And you need to uh, maintain the structures in the brain. And there you've got your very long chain omega-3 essential fatty acids like uh, docosahexaenoic acid, DHA, which is critical to those sort of structures. And there's a whole series of antioxidants that are important as well.
1: Natural natural antioxidants?
3: Yeah. Natural antioxidants. Natural
1: antioxidants. Good. Good. I'm glad.
3: Because, uh, for instance, um, selenium, which is my area of research.
1: Yeah, look out, look out, General Custer.
3: <laughs> got him. See,
1: I, I remember it as well, Nick. You know, I'm, I'm paying yeah, attention. It's
3: good, Robbie. I've got you there. I'll have to tell you the story so you've got it. <laughs> um selenium's present in a protein called uh, selenoprotein W, which sits in the region just above the thalamus. As you deplete any animal with selenium, you'll get a series of different types of pathologies, um, depending on the sequence of which you uh, clear out selenoproteins. But the selenoprotein W in the brain just sits there. It's highly conserved. So there's obviously a critical role for that particular protein in that particular region, which is in the short-term memory region. Of the brain, so that's an example of an antioxidant nutrient, selenium, operating in a critical zone in uh, psychological function in the brain. Wow! Well, I think we're
2: um, we're, we're sort of getting to the end of the uh, the chat um, now, Nick. So um, General, General Custer,
3: story now. <laughs>
2: Well, I guess I reckon the thing on on everyone's lips, and it's been on the question on on my lips and all the listeners' lips right from the start, is you've got nineteen year old pudding in the house there. What are you feeding him?
3: I was hoping you wouldn't ask that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> how much how much selenium are you putting in? What uh, uh, you know, which grains are you using? Where the uh, the, uh, the dihydroxy dihoxyhadrina- well, personally- acid.
3: We have developed a cat dental diet, and yes. it's a very fancy cat dental diet. And it's the first one of my cat diets that pudding's eaten. <laughs> oh, that's good! Very good. That's uh, that should be coming out soon. It's a delicate care cat dental. Watch out for it. It's exceedingly palatable. Uh,
2: and I can attest to that. I've got my olive cat on the uh, the dental. I got a must have got a a. Uh, and an early version of it uh, sent over from WA, along with those wines that are on their way. Um, and, and I must say, Olive is, is powering through it. She loves the dental, it's very palatable. I have to in agree.
3: general, uh, pudding gets fed uh, Felix, and uh, luckily, Coles and Woolies sell chicken at 10 bucks a pop. <laughs> <laughs> He loves cooked chicken, not so much the bones, of course. (laughs) No, good, (laughs) completely unbalanced.
1: Uh, 19 years of age, mate, it's all you know, it's more important for a 19 year old cat to eat. It
3: doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, (laughs) it's a classic song. It doesn't matter anymore, (laughs) (laughs) And
2: and a thick shake from McDonald's, I suppose. (laughs)
3: <laughs> he's not, not into the milk but no, all of those uh, he loves it he's particularly keen on tuna uh, but chicken and uh, Felix and um, our DC cat dental are really his combination food the delicate was, care dental it. he goes up and down from our balcony down through the grapevine uh, onto the barbecue still leaping around Um, can't hunt birds he's too slow for birds and mice these days
2: (laughs) well just as well the mice have got the wrong microbiome so he wouldn't be getting much out of those (laughs) no use (laughs)
3: no use. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Well, I must admit, thank you so much, uh, Nick, for for coming on the show and, and having a chat to us and and giving an insight into an area that to us is, you know, me and Robbie, we've got a we got a touching of that at uni, but certainly nothing as in depth as um as what, what you provided us today. And I um we really appreciate uh, appreciate you coming on the show and uh and and teaching us all about the delicate care range and also nutrition in general.
3: problems there Lewis uh, no what happened with General Custer
1: <laughs> <laughs> good on you Nick thank you very much well how was that mate we cut, we cut him short on the General Custer you're hoping to try and you're just going to have to listen to You're just going to have to read it up on Wikipedia though.
2: Well, i tell you what we were just saying before we went to the interview, how we're thanking our Patreon supporters for our new Zoom subscription. Uh, unfortunately, our Zoom <laughs> subscription ran out. We didn't have enough time to, to get the whole interview and the general customer in as well. So maybe, maybe next interview, hey, we'll, we can, we can next work time, out.
1: Next time. We'll, we'll have two, two vets talk, uh, talk American history with, uh, with, with, with other people. And, and that'll, that'll be our our sort of spinoff podcast Lewis that, that, that maybe that could be good.
2: S- sounds like a plan mate S- sounds like a plan i really i'm I'm interested to know how selenium affected uh general custer <laughs>
1: <laughs> i don't think it ended well for him or just as a spoiler oh uh, what yeah, don't, don't do that well yeah um but speaking of things going well uh, do you want to dip into the mailbag
2: yeah so we uh we got one carried over from last week that was uh from um from rebecca pa- duffy that's right patreon supporter rebecca and she goes uh, hi Robin lewis I'm moving from my apartment to a house soon. Do you have any tips for preparing my dog Dakota for the transition? Is it possible to teach him to relieve himself in one area of the yard? Also, do you have any fence variety opinions I should know about? Sorry for all the questions. I'm loving the podcast and have an idea. What if, what if you had Deb come on with both of you so that no one gets left out? That's oh, okay.
1: hang on, that, that sounds incredibly diplomatic.
2: Nah, no, nah, no, nah, no,
1: no. You, you, you nah. don't want to mix, nah. mix, you know, wife with pleasure? No, nah. no,
2: well, well, of course, I want to mix. Oh, I that. oh okay. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. Of course, I want to do that. But, but, uh, but not, not sure, you know, I, I don't want to share Deb with you. you know, but mostly, our listeners just want me and Deb, really, I think. Well, I think uh, there is that. <laughs> So thank you very, thank you very All much, right. Rebecca, so, yeah, for, for trying to placate both of us and, uh, <laughs> and, and,
1: and us involve like, Deb in a you know some sort of you know, menage kind of <laughs> try, menage our pod kind of way.
2: So anyway, on to your questions from the top. Uh, so the first one is any tips for transition, uh, and yes, I do have some tips for transition. Oh, yeah, there you, you go. Show and us your tips. Next question. Yes. Um is it possible? <laughs> so firstly, uh firstly make sure Dakota is microchipped and it's got a collar with your phone number and a tag on it. Be good oh, stuff. Yes. Good, uh, good try, try and keep routines sort of fairly similar, meal times, walk times, all that sort of thing. On the actual day that you're moving, perhaps put Dakota into a, a kennel or or send to a friend's for a day so we're not Sort of involved, and we could run out or run away with the moving trucks or become quite distressed or anxious about it.
1: There's lots of doors opened up and then people coming and going on moving days. So one one less unpredictable variable that you can control will make the rest of your day go very, very smoothly.
2: Definitely. And make make Dakota a bit calmer as well, potentially. I guess, you know, you have mentioned about the fencing sort of stuff, you know, make sure the new house is secure, the fences are secure, Um, you know, there's no poisons or old things in the garage perhaps. Or maybe even an old compost bin in the backyard that Dakota's going to. go, Oh, that's that's beautiful, you know. Nom, 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 yep. nom, nom. Or you know cables, you know cables lying around the house that we're going to chew on. All those, all those sorts of things. Make sure, make sure they're all sorted. As far as the fences go, I'm not sure. Um, you know, perhaps what you're getting at there. I'm not sure if you're talking about uh, maybe some of the electric fences or electronic fences, uh, electric shock fences that you can get um, that are remote containment. Um, type fences, similar to I suppose a cow in a, in a paddock scenario where you electrify the fence, but there is actually no fence there. It's just a, a line buried under the uh, uh, under in the soil, and then you, the dog wears a collar. And when they go near the line, they often get a noise first. And if they keep going near the the fence in inverted commas, they get um, an electric shock. Now, pretty long description. Basically, I don't like them at all. Um, uh, and I don't recommend them. So a lot of dogs can get quite distressed by the actual shock. I've had some dogs where they get a shock and they actually turn around and bite the owner because they, they uh, redirect their aggression. Um, and also if you've got that um, invisible fence situation, any other dog can run onto your property mm. and, and, you know, corner your dog or attack your dog or whatever it might be. Um, and, and doesn't provide that sort of fence barrier. Um, and then the, the final one is if we have got some separation anxiety or something where we are trying to escape because we're really anxious and, and distressed in that situation, we'll just run through that shock. And and once we pass the shock, then it stops shocking. So, you know, essentially we just keep running and running in our frantic state. Mm. So it doesn't really contain them very well. So fences uh, should be a physical fence should be secure, nice lockable gate Um um, to contain Dakota, um, does, in, in your backyard.
1: Does Rebecca go on to say what so, what sort of breed of dog Dakota is Lewis? No, or? No, no. Okay. No. Because, um, being, um, I guess wary of how high your dog could jump and, and then sort of increasing that by about uh, so increasing your expectation by about 30 to 50%. Um, my uh, my kids' old um uh, uh, kinder teacher, she got herself a whippet who got really bad separation anxiety and would like he was he, just a tiny little whippet and he was jumping over eight foot fences. Wow! because you know, like, he, he could just get his skinny little legs on the little bars on each side of the gate and he would just scramble, just parkour his way up and over the fence and then yeah, they'd end up getting phone calls from people up and down the street finding uh finding little Wilfred up and yeah. down the street. Well, so. s-
2: similarly, I went and went to, I did a behaviour consult many years ago to. a guy who um he he had a sharp high, mm-hmm. um that was it was escaping out of the backyard and he didn't he appreciate it that had separation anxiety and i said oh yeah we'll go and have a look at the house so we sort of you know walk around the backyard and uh and he had along the backyard of the house uh, big electric strips of electrified uh, tape that used for cattle, electrified the back of his house because the dog was scratching at the back doors of the house, trying to get in the house. It was incredible. I was just like, you know, it was that moment where you have to pretend like you've seen it all before and act all calm and Mm -hmm. and then slowly pull out your camera and take a few shots. It was incredible what I saw. But then we did a little – a practice of actually leaving sort of the house and what we're going, he's going, he's still getting out, even though I've electrified everything, he's still getting out. And we went around the back and he had fences up to 12 foot, double the height, really quite high. And he's still getting out. So I said, Oh, let's try us leaving. So we left the house and, and went around And we sort of snuck around the back and watched. And he was the dog literally on the corner of the house and the fence, one foot on the corner, one foot on the fence, just climbing all the way up. Just it was incredible. It was wow. a, t- to jump to jump the fence and get out to just Tom Cruise and his yeah. way up the fence. It yeah, was right. it was yeah, full parkour. It was incredible. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was it was amazing. So but that was separation anxiety, and hopefully that won't happen to Dakota. Um, and I'm sure Dakota's not ashamed. Hopefully. Yeah, right. Um, So, I guess linked to that, we do know that move house can trigger separation anxiety. um, is something we do see. So, it's important to start maybe some medication to help with that now. Um, and like, uh, like I said earlier, Zilkeen, um, big user of that. I'll be saying that a few days before the move comes on, even starting it as you're packing boxes. And that's something to help with, with anxiety. Um, you can get some adapter, which is like a pheromone sort of collar. You can put, put on them to help again with, with some anxiety. But if you think we are prone to getting some separation, anxiety, it might be a good idea to have a, ch- a chat to your vet earlier on to, mm. to get onto some, some prescription medications as well. Once you move into the into the new house, um, you're looking at short departures um, initially. Know, and giving, giving Dakota something fun to do while you leave. So it might be a Kong filled with some peanut butter or, or something really tasty that we enjoy and, uh, and can, uh, and can occupy ourselves while you're gone for a short period. Maybe it's just out to, to put something in the bin or out for, you know, um, just walk around the quick round the block or something like that. And then over time, just gradually, um, increase the length of time that you're leaving and, and monitoring how Dakota is going, maybe with a video camera set up, um, something, something like that. And I'll importantly, take it all slow. You know, it, it might take a little while. Um, you know, don't expect Dakota to be totally comfortable in the house the first day you drop us in, drop yeah. us in there. So, 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 take that really, really slowly. You do sort of ask as well on the question Anything about, in there,
1: Lewis, about playing our podcast to, to go to Dakota through like speakers and, you know, that we can help to try and keep Dakota, uh, you know, company while um while Rebecca's at work or having to leave Dakota by himself. Is there any, any have you
2: got that on your list?
1: Well what we what am I it's
2: okay Dakota Mummy will be home soon. Mummy be Sorry. home soon Dakota. It's okay Dakota
1: Mummy be home soon. It's okay Dakota Mummy be home soon.
2: She could play that on loop. On and, loop?
1: Yeah. yeah I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah nice
2: one. Yeah there you go. that's, that's a special one. That's all we do for our Patreon <laughs> supporters, isn't it? <laughs> Um, she also mentioned, can I teach him to relieve himself in one area of the yard? Well, you can. You can teach an old dog new tricks, essentially. So, if you've got a, a special grass area that you want Dakota to go on, you really need to imagine that Dakota's a puppy again. So, um, you know, there's, I generally say there's, you know, with an older dog, you might know the times are more likely to want to go to the toilet. maybe when we first wake up in the morning and maybe when you come home, you know, we've been in, you know, inside all day or something like that. And what you do need to do is put Dakota on a collar and a leash and go out to that spot and actually stand with us. And then when we do go in that spot, make a fuss. Good puppy Dakota, you good dog. Give us Good a on food.
1: you, Dakota. You've done away on the grass. Good on you, Dakota. You've done away on the grass.
2: Excellent. And that, yep. And give a tasty food reward. Something we really enjoy. Something you know, a bit of sausage, hot dog, you know, chicken breast, whatever it is, we enjoy. Yep. So, something yummy. And and just just consistently encouraging us to go back to that spot and rewarding behaviour for going going in that spot. That's the simplest way that uh, that you can get about teaching them to go in a certain area in the backyard. There you go. So there you go. So hopefully that answers your, your questions, Rebecca. Sorry about the week delay in getting to So It's it's been it's been a bit busy. But you've got a question too, haven't you, mate? I
1: sure do. Yes. So now this is um, uh, hot off the presses, Lewis. Um, this is actually a uh, 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 an SMS that we've received, Lewis, from one of the mums from Christina's mother's group. Um, now, Was this on uh, on Tok? Tok?
2: The SMS it, it was a talk, talk talk it was an talk, SMS talk talk,
1: talk. She, um, she she sent through a little a little dance of of, um, of, of her um, you yeah, know sort of like an interpretive dance of what was going on um, of the problem for her with a new little whippet so um so the story is um, they're uh, a suburban family two um, two kids same ages as um, as Camille and Ruben, so so nine and seven um, and they've just got themselves a uh, an adult whippet so, um, as it turns out from the same breeder as where we got Rosie from, right. Now, um, as often happens with, uh, six, seven year old younger brothers, he is very, very exuberant. And as often happens with whippets that haven't been used to seeing, um, seeing exuberant kids, he's getting a little bit stressed out. And so she was asking for some tips on how to try and help them to get along because she's worried that their relationship is going to be a little bit strained in that they're worried that the dog might start to get a bit grumpy with the, uh, with the youngest child. So I had a couple of ideas, but given that this is your wheelhouse, I wanted to see whether or not you can, um, you know, expand on them and, you know, sort of get a, uh, you know, bring a, bring a more uh, sort of fine touch to it. Looks. Well, what,
2: what I do, what I yeah, sure. What, what I do recommend is, is, is a, a harness, with a with a leash leash <laughs> An attached. Extendable leash? No, yeah. not extendable. No, just no. a leash attached and then then hook that under the sofa. And uh and uh and and there you controlled your exuberant child. And attach that
1: onto the kid. Yeah, yeah so that the, way of the, the dog the dog can
2: move around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, I see a, where you're going now. A Kong with some peanut butter. Yes. And then the child's, you know, it's, it's not moving. It's all good. Know where it is. When you leave in the house, you can
1: can leave him there attached exactly, so so he can get his tongue inside the Kong to get the peanut butter off. At least he's got a peanut allergy, in which case, you (laughs) know, we wouldn't wouldn't use peanut butter.
2: No, almond butter.
0: Go with almond almond butter.
1: butter.
2: Yes. Or, Or sunflower seed butter or something natural. Yeah, something natural, no yeah. antioxidants. Yeah, you know, but,
1: but, no, no, no synthetic antioxidants. That's in right.
2: there. Maybe maybe a selenium butter, as recommended <laughs> by
1: General oh. Custard style. Yes, um, that's
2: right. General Custard. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, um, yeah, that's so, a good question.
1: So, what my advice was going to be is that uh, a, um, we need to make sure that 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 the dog has. A place where it can go, where it's not going to be bugged, yeah, you know, right. an an absolute no go zone, yep. and it is of fear of the 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 Nintendo Switch getting thrown out the window and never playing Minecraft again, and no more football and no lollies. If the, maybe they need to have like a little red line around the dog's bed and say right you know this is a this is social distancing away from the dog when the dog's on there let him let him sleep because he uh, i i think he needs to have it's he's because he's an adult dog, he's two years old. This is a completely new environment for him to be in, so he needs to feel like there's an area that is that he feels safe enough.
2: Yeah. Um, I go. One- I go a little bit heavier than that. I, I think. Yeah. I think often dogs like um, even an area that's uh, that's got a barrier behind it. So you know, it might be a, a small laundry room or something like that with some nice bedding in it, and you have a baby gate the dog can jump over or something like that. Yeah, um, okay. But it sort of it provides a physical barrier, which is you know for young boys. Um, perhaps a little bit easier to adhere to yeah, okay, um, or, yeah. or even some crate training sort of aspect where, you know, when you're in, when we're in a crate, not necessarily the door shut, but the yeah. dog, you know, tra- training the the whippet to go into the crate and, you know, with food rewards and, and the dog knows when I'm in there, nobody's allowed to come near me. And that's a standard rule sort of thing in the house, you know, dogs in the crate and that, that can go well then for visitors coming over too. So yeah, no, good, good point, mate. Cool.
1: Um, the next one was going to be trying to improve the interactions that um that the two of them have together. So yep. um, so when uh he's um when uh, their their sons around um and the sons being quiet and the dogs being quiet, treats lots and lots and lots and lots of treats. Son giving the dog treats, them giving the dog treats. Just not you know uh, trying to really uh, um. Uh, hammer home that good things happen when you're around us, but it's going to be calm and everything's going to be okay. And if we do reach a point where excitation levels are, are increasing either between the dog or the kids that then it's okay. Right now it's quiet time. Go and have a run around outside dog can go, go onto his bed with his peanut butter filled Kong and everyone can just have a chance to try and relax a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think a big part of that is is supervision of obviously the their son when he's yes. being exuberant and 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 sort of um, you know getting him away from the dog if we do seem overexcited. So almost in a way, you you're teaching the child. Uh, it's like. Uh, um, is a negative punishment. I'm just trying to think of the so, so the psychological term for it, but yeah. basically, you're saying when when you get too out of control, you actually lose that that uh, that reinforcement of interacting with the dog. So, gotcha. yeah. So when you're when you're near the dog, let's do so. This is the interactions I want you to I want you to teach the dog to sit, and then the dog sits and it gets a treat. And then you yeah. can pat the dog, and it, it sort of teaches the the child a little bit of uh, restraint. I think of I can't just run up and pat the dog any time. Okay, I need yeah. to have a food reward with me. A dog, you know, I could go to the dog. Perhaps I crouch down if the dog's a little bit nervous of me mm. on the side. Get the dog to sit, you know, training to sit, um, and then I give it a food reward, and then I can give it a pat. So it's sort of teaching the you know the child a little bit. There's an actual distinct. Uh, sequence of events that needs to occur before I can I can sort of sort of pat the dog. So I, I think that's a that's a good one too.
1: And also then getting the vibes from the dog that he wants to be patted too. Yeah, you know, yes. that, 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 that the dog, yeah, yes. I am in a mind's place where where I am happy to be patted because I've been told I've been a good boy. I've got a treat. Yes, you can give me a pat. And reading that body language of, why don't you want a treat? Why don't you want a treat? Oh, you're on your bed. Hang on. Oh, yeah, no problems at all. You've gone into. You've gone into your safe zone. No problems, mate. I'll catch you later on.
2: Yeah, um, well, that's right. Your body language yeah, is really important. So looking at things like uh, yawning, you know, licking the lips, turning their eyes away, you know, can indicate that uh, that um, that the child's hungry. No, only joking the
1: <laughs> from when they've been attached to the to the to the chair in the harness. Yes. That's right. They've emptied out the peanut butter out of the Kong. Yeah. They need
2: to go to the toilet, yes. Yeah, You'll yeah. Take them out to that spot in the backyard where you're training them to go. <laughs> No. We, we, we've got the electric
1: fencing around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um,
2: you know, um, I forgot what we we're talking about there. So, uh,
1: just, um, yeah, yeah. The, the sit sitting and staying and, uh, and reading body language, body language, yeah,
2: body language. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the subtle signs of the body language, watching the dog's body language, you know, getting yourself attuned to what are the signs of anxiety that your dog's mm-hmm. showing and teaching your son you know, what, what those signs are as well, teaching the whole family. So they can, they can know, I mean if you're leaning in to, to pat the dog and it's leaning right away from you and giving you a bit of a sideways look or like a whale eye, we call it where mm. you see sort of the whites of their eyes looking at you sideways. That generally means they're probably not so comfortable with, with doing that sort of thing getting the son involved with, with walking, you know, is, you know, that's a really good way, both of them getting some activity done, um, whether the dog likes throwing toys or, you know, um, cat, you know, t- balls or that sort of thing, getting involved with that sort of thing. That's often something that, that young, young boys like to do is, you know, throw balls and, and, and toys and, um, and having those interactions where both of them can be exuberant, but, but um, but you're also monitoring it all the time. So tug toys as well um, is another one too, if interest are interested in those. Yeah. Good one. Um, And then the
1: third one was going to be um, talking about our, um, our big friends of um, at Um, Yeah, thinking about trying to get him on some stuff because this has been, you know, uh, we all know firsthand just how um, attuned to anxiety whippets can be um, and coming into a new place where everything's a little bit stressy and a little bit worrying, maybe something to try and help to put his mind in a better mindset to allow him to, relax a little bit so yeah. something like Zilkeen or uh, the other um yeah pharmacological you have more prescription medications if he needs it but certainly Zilkeen or adaptal i think it'd be a good um a really good first step oh, or,
2: definitely mate and i think you could also put the whippet on those as well probably at some stage too yeah,
1: absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> I, I, I hear that the Zilkeen works really well in the peanut butter inside of the collar yeah to, to leave down there by the couch
2: yeah that's all right and the adaptal collar goes well next to that electronic collar too yeah.
1: So if he runs, if he run, runs, it runs, it runs across the road. Yeah. Exactly.
3: It's
2: like that old
1: Simpsons episode where they're whacking each other with
2: the sticks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so,
1: so do you have any other sort of big things that I've sort of missed out on those big three or th- do you think that's a pretty good starting point? I think
2: you've touched on pretty well, mate. Um, You know, it, unfortunately, a lot of it does come down to parent supervision. I think particularly mm-hmm. with, with those kids, that sort of age, or uh, Ruben's what about five? So about uh, five yeah, year six, old. Six, seven. Six.
1: six. seven. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry,
2: Ruben. I didn't mean to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) He'll probably be saying six
1: and three quarters, dad. Well, yeah, just about he's, he's just realised that he's um that he's going to be having an ISO birthday. So um yeah. Yeah, but our you know really good friend of ours, she's turns forty tomorrow, so she's missing out on her fortieth. One of the nurses from work, she had a twenty first on Wednesday. So yeah, you yeah, well,
2: April April had a twelfth one last week, and she had a Zoom party. So she baked cupcakes, nice um and and we walked around the local area and just put them on the front doorstep of all her friends, would um, yeah, cupcake each, and then she had a, a time. They all went on Zoom together and lit the birthday the cupcakes and ate the cakes on the zoom so she had a party she was happy with that it seemed all right it went well so nice there's one. an idea for you. yeah very good
1: yeah. Yeah, I, I think the chances of reuben being able to get around and not having eaten the, the cupcakes <laughs> as we as we start dan- uh, walking them around it'd be like um uh, the uh another simpsons reference that the little german kid on um I go i begged you to judge mine first i begged you you yeah, know when he's making the i um, made a chocolate don't worry about it. Yeah. Don't worry
2: uh, about it. We'll put that with general castor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. Um, all right. So if, if you would like to support the podcast, hopefully that helps Catherine. If it doesn't, then, you know, uh, ask me more. You know, you got my number, send me a message. Um, uh, yeah, um, Patreon. Um, if you would like to support the, uh, the podcast, look for us at patreon.com, search for two vets, talk pets, um, for as little as $2 a month. Um, Lewis will get off his bum and send you a, uh, a sticker, you know, because it, because he's, he's good like that. You know, and he loves, no, he, won't. he loves sending them out. He will. Really <laughs> he, he's great. He's great. He's a great man. He loves sending out stickers. Um, uh, Look we'll at uh, Suzanne
2: if, Suzanne Baker to send them from America if, if we've got any local one. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah,
1: she, she's much more reliable than what you are. Uh, um, I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. Uh, and um, and leave us a review. Tell your friends about us. Send us through or send a send a link. You know if there's anything that you would like us to cover. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. a Question anything like that. Let us know.
2: And if you want, if you want, you like Tommy, and you want, um, you want uh, Robbie's latest tax returns. Then uh, well,
1: feel yeah. free to get onto us, us on
2: Instagram. Me. Get onto Pull us, us on Instagram.
1: It's only been the end of the financial year for two weeks, so we haven't quite got it done yet, Tommy. So you're probably going to have to wait a little
2: bit longer until we get back from the accountants. That's fine. Um, he wants the last five years, mate. Don't worry about it. Oh,
0: that's
1: all right. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, yeah. All right.
2: But we do, we do answer pet-related questions, so get on to us on, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, uh, the Tok Tok, or on House Party. Um, we're on them all, aren't we, mate? Zoom. Zoom. Know. We are Zoom. now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all righty, guys. We'll scratch you later. Peace out, mate.
2: Good stuff.
0: Longest episode ever. Thanks for listening to Two Vets Talk Pets with Lewis and Robbie. To chat further about this week's episode or ask the guys any questions, search Two Vets Talk Pets on Facebook, Twitter,